0: Thank you. What a great song for the subject matter today as we look at the doctrine of God. Do not fear all of these books up here. You're not going to be here all week, okay? Uh, Let me just reiterate what we are doing on Sunday mornings. Uh, I was going to teach a small group on Doctrine, basic doctrines of our faith. And guys, let me say I'm echoing pretty bad. I think it's a little loud. Is it loud? No? Okay. Maybe it's not. Anyway, I was going to teach a small group on doctrines of our faith. And folks said, Scott, would you do that on a Sunday morning? Our whole church needs that. But if you do it on a Sunday morning, you need to keep it more simple. And so I'll try to do that, okay? Uh, I've scaled this down a lot from when I taught Theology 101 and 102 in one of our Baptist colleges in the state for a period of time. So I'm not giving you that, scaling it down from that but uh if you are a guest of ours this morning and came expecting a normal sermon you know come back we'll get back to that uh but again folks asked me said we've got we've got new believers in our congregation we've got believers from different backgrounds Uh, all of our folks need a basic understanding of doctrine so that's what this is designed to be you should have one of these pages a handout that you were given on your way in uh, eight pages front and back if you don't you need to raise your hand because we've got ushers need to get you a copy and those down in the core uh, on the back row here and down in the core those watching online or streaming down in the core there are some of these down there also and I want to reiterate to those watching online Uh, You can hit that little PDF button below today's live streaming and these documents will come up. The study guide and then after today, the full manuscript that I cover today will also be available. So everybody should have access to this. Don't be concerned if you're sitting next to somebody and the bottom of their first page ends with the number 6. And the bottom of your first page ends with the number 7. I'd made about 100 copies of the very top line saying Systematic Theology, the Doctrine of God. And after I made about 100 copies of those, I decided to go back and put in the title that we're using, Celebrating Our Foundations, when I did that. It dropped the number 7 down to the top of the second page. But it's still the same document, same information. You're not missing anything. So uh, anyway, just wanted to make you mindful of that. Uh, A couple of housekeeping matters. We do want to pray for Ann Shuford. John and Ann Shuford, her mom did pass away. She has been caring for her mother for couple of years now so we want to pray for ann in a special way and also helen andrews in our church passed away over the weekend and her service will be here wednesday morning visitation will be in here at 10 a.m. and the service at 11 a.m. so pray for Rhonda walls she's in our church and it's her mother helen andrews uh that passed away so remember. Uh, these families take your bibles out this morning and i want to ask you to turn to a couple of passages of scripture as we look today at the doctrine of god and uh, i want to ask you to find exodus chapter 3 exodus chapter 3 and i'm also going to ask you to find psalm 139 psalm 139 and i've pretty well decided i think we will only get through page 5 of your outline today probably so again relax <laughs> we'll we'll come back next time and look at the trinity exodus 3 beginning in verse 13 And then over in Psalm 139, Psalm 139, David said, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Father, I pray that you would open our understanding today to your word. Your word is precious to us. Because it is through your word that we learn about you. And your great redemptive plan for us it's where we learn about our sin and our need of a savior and we're told about Jesus Christ who died, was buried and was raised again on the third day Lord teach us, open our eyes and hearts and minds that we might understand wonderful things from your word and as we talk this morning about the doctrine of God Lord, may it result in praise and honor to you, and glory being given to you, and lives that are surrendered to you and to your purposes, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, looking at uh, the doctrine of God, this is what we would call theology proper. Many of the other things... Under theology would be subcategories like Christology, the doctrine of the person and work of Christ, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Those would be subcategories. Theology proper refers to the doctrine of God. It's made up, as I've told you, of two words, theos and logia, which would be sayings about God or uh, theos. Logos would be words or writings about God. That's literally what theology means. Now folks, as you look at your outline and start filling in some of those blanks there, uh, there will always be an element of mystery regarding God. There will always be an element of mystery regarding God. And yet the scripture tells us volumes about him. And the scripture helps us to see that we can know him. So yes, elements of mystery, and yet he is also chosen to reveal who he is and what he's like and what he does on the pages of scripture. The late A.W. Tozer once said, what we believe about God is the most important thing about us. What we believe about God is the most important thing about us. You know, our belief or our lack of it is inevitably going to translate itself into our actions and attitudes. Have you read the classic book? I mean, it's one of the all-time classics in Christianity, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. You know the book I'm talking about? It's one of the—if you've never read that book, you need to. One of the great classics in Christianity— J.I. Packer said in that book, I believe that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. What a wonderful statement. The study of God is the most meaningful pursuit in life. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah writes, This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. You know, folks, a a study of God is also going to unveil who we are. You remember that vision of God Isaiah received in Isaiah chapter 6? When Isaiah went into the temple to worship and you know the earthly king who had been king for quite a number of decades and overall was a good king in the land, had brought peace and prosperity. Of course, he that king had messed up near the end of his life, but he had been a good king, and he was dead. So I'm sure Isaiah was very concerned about what's the, what's the future of the nation going to be now. And he went into the temple to worship, and, and God gave him that vision of himself, of God high and lifted up in his train, his robe filling the temple. And the seraphim were flying around crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In other words, the earthly king might be dead. Dead. But the true sovereign king of the universe is still on his throne. Amen? And you remember the result of that vision to Isaiah? When he had that vision of God, got that vision of God, it also unveiled who he was. He said, woe is me, I'm undone. He saw that he was a sinner. And if not for the grace of God he would die right there in the presence of God. And God touched him and cleansed him and commissioned him. And so when we when we look at God in the scripture and study God and encounter him in our lives it's going to unveil who we are and we're going to end up getting a true vision of ourselves. So again a proper study of God will do that. It'll un- unveil who we are, and when we have a vision of God, we will have a true vision of ourselves. You know, in, in John 17 3, Jesus said, If you really want to live, don't go out looking for life and pursuing things in the world. Jesus said, If you really want to have life, if you really want to live, then you need to look and pursue the knowledge of God because that's eternal life. The knowledge of God is also going to give great security to our lives. Great security. In Psalm 46, a favorite psalm of many people. Psalm 46, verse 1 through 3 The psalmist said, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. And that's why he says later on in verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So God gives us security in our life. Well, our first main point this morning, I want you to write down that God exists. God exists. And under that, the first thing, Scripture assumes that God exists. You know, the first verse in the the entire Bible is rather matter-of-fact, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis doesn't try to give us an apologetic, a defense for God's existence. The Bible assumes His existence. Scripture also tells us that all persons everywhere know that God exists. Remember a couple of sessions ago when we were talking about general revelation and we were looking at Romans chapter 1 verses 19 to 25. That that we're told in Romans, Paul tells us that through the created order, God has clearly made himself known so that men are without excuse Derek Thomas Dr. Derek Thomas says (laughs) I like this quote God doesn't believe in atheist God doesn't believe in atheist now how true because he knows he has put a knowledge of him into each human heart. Psalm 14:1 says the fool says in his heart there is no god. Folks, it is sin that causes men to deny God and suppress the truth. You know, suppressing the truth, unbelief, it's intentional. And it's irrational also given the fact that God has made knowledge of Himself available. Dr. Wayne Gruden gives an example of this. He talks about back when he was a college student. They were go- a group of college students, they were they were going on a trip somewhere and they were all piled into one car and they hit a patch of ice or water or something spinning out of control, and it looked like they were gonna have a terrible wreck. And one girl in the car, she, she let everybody know constantly she was an atheist. And when that car is careening out of control, that, that girl who said she was an atheist said, Dear Jesus, please save us. You know, the Bible also tells us that Satan keeps men from believing. In 2 Corinthians 4 4, Paul said, The God of this world, the evil one, has blinded the minds of the unbeliever, lest they see the glory of God in Christ. Now, folks, as we talk about God's existence, and I'm I'm trying to move slow enough so you can feel in. Am I am I going about the right pace so you can fill in stuff? Okay as we talk about God's existence we can also say that God is both transcendent and imminent now by God's transcendence what we mean is that he is above and beyond and greater than his creation and God is not a slave to the natural law that he authored. But he's independent of it and above it. He can override it at will, though normally he does not choose to do this. But God is also imminent. And now by this we mean that His presence and power pervade His entire creation. He's above this world. He's greater than this world that He created. But He doesn't stand apart from it. He's not just a spectator of the things He's made. He's present. He's involved. Listen to what Isaiah 57, 15 says of this. It says, for this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in heart. Isn't that great? That, that one verse right there is affirming both, his transcendence and his eminence. Jeremiah 23 24. Jeremiah 23 24 is another example that speaks of God's eminence. Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? Do not I feel? heaven and earth declares the Lord and yet listen to Isaiah 55 Isaiah 55 verses 8 to 9 speaks of God's transcendence says for he says for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts and so one verse emphasizes the eminence of God and another his transcendence. So God's eminence God's eminence means that God is very involved in the world he has made. And yet his transcendence points out that he is greater than his creation. I know you've got a good bit to write there, so I'll say that again. God's eminence means that God is very involved in the world he has made, yet his transcendence points out that he is greater than his creation. Now folks, it's very important that we keep the transcendence of God and the eminence of God in balance with one another. We need to see both. Because if we don't see both, you know what we're going to do? We're going to distort God. We're going to distort who He is and what He's like. And if we emphasize His transcendence, then we're going to think He's distant and aloof and uncaring. If we emphasize too much his eminence, we're just going to think that he's our buddy-buddy. He's the man upstairs. He's buddy-buddy. What a horrible way to describe God, right? The man upstairs? Don't ever say that. But again, we need to keep both in, in balance. I mentioned to you, One of our Baptist theologians, Millard Erickson, he's got a big, 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 fat volume. This is just an abridged volume of that. Very, very simple text, by the way, too, if you want a good introductory text. But listen to what Erickson says about God's eminence and uh, His transcendence. I'm just going to read a few paragraphs. Divine eminence of the limited degree taught in scripture carries several implications number one God is not limited to working directly to accomplish his purposes while it is obviously a work of God when his people pray and a miraculous healing occurs it is also God's work when through the application of medical knowledge and skill a physician Uh, uses is successful in preventing illness or bringing a patient back to health medicine is part of God's general revelation and the work of the doctor is a channel of God's activity again an example of God's eminence a second example God may use persons and organizations that are not avowedly christian In biblical times, God did not limit himself to working through the covenant nation of Israel or through the church. He even used Assyria and Babylon, pagan nations, to chasten his own people, Israel. He's able to use secular or nominally Christian organizations. Even non-Christians do some uh, genuinely good and commendable things. And a third implication, we should have an appreciation for all God has created. The world is God and he's present and active in it. Just a few things he mentions there. Implications of his transcendence. One implication is there's something higher than human beings. There's something that gives us value from above. And then secondly, another implication of transcendence. God can never be completely captured in human concepts. This means that all of our doctrinal ideas, helpful and basically correct though they may be, cannot fully exhaust God's nature. He's not limited to our understanding of Him. A third implication, our salvation is not our achievement. We're not able to raise ourselves to God's level by fulfilling His standards for us. A fourth implication, there'll always be a difference between God and humans. The gap between us is not merely a moral and spiritual disparity that originated with the fall. It's metaphysical, stemming from creation. Even when redeemed and glorified, we will still be renewed human beings. We will never become God. So just a few implications, practical, outworking implications of both God's eminence and His transcendence. Now folks, not only does the Bible proclaim God's existence, but the Bible also points out that God is knowable. God is knowable. We've already established in previous sessions that through general revelation alone, God's existence is known so that men are without excuse. And we saw there that through nature, through history, and through the inner conscience, man knows there is a God. So that in general revelation, there's enough to condemn us, not enough to save us. We need special revelation for that. But again, through general revelation even, we see that God is knowable and God has revealed himself. John Calvin said that God condescends to us in baby talk. That's true, isn't it? Condescends to us in baby talk. God gives special revelation in order that we not simply know that He is there, but that we can actually know Him through relationship. Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus said, No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 21 says that the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. Now, all of this means that we need the scripture in order to rightly interpret general revelation, we need special revelation specifically special revelation of the Scripture in order to rightly interpret general revelation. Because what are men going to do without the Bible? Without the Bible, men are going to distort their image of God. And don't we see that happening around us all the time? Men distorting who God is. In, instead of getting their vision of the person and work of God from the Scripture, oh, my God would do this or never do this, or my God's like this. Or, and they might come up with a whole host of things you never find in here. That's idolatry. But, but that's inevitably going to happen when we don't allow the Scripture to give us a proper image of God. We're going to distort Our image of God. And we're going to have a great misunderstanding of who he is and what he's like and what he does. Well, a third point this morning. God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. Now, this doesn't mean that he's unknowable because we've just said he is knowable. But what it does mean is that we will never fully know God. In other words, we will never know God exhaustively. We will never know God exhaustively. You could write down Psalm 145 3 Psalm 147 5 1st 1 Corinthians 2 10 through 12 let me just read the end of Romans 9 the very tail end of uh, excuse me Romans 11 in that great doxology that Paul gives there all oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments, and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So again, we'll never know him exhaustively. And folks, we can can even say that the incomprehensibility of God means that, it, it also means that we will never fully know any single thing about God. In fact, even in the age to come, we will never fully know God. Keep in mind, He's the sovereign Lord of the universe, and even in heaven, we're not going to be that. There's only one. We're not even going to fully know Him exhaustively then. Now, His incomprehensibility is, is mainly because of two things. First of all, man's sinfulness. Man's sinfulness. And then secondly, God's greatness, His infinite greatness. Now folks, while all of this is true, it's also true that believers should be constantly growing in their knowledge of God. In fact, we're commanded in Scripture to be constantly growing in our knowledge of God. And and so, one of the joys of the Christian life should be this lifelong adventure of knowing God. Lifelong adventure of knowing God. We can know God truly while affirming his incomprehensibility. That is, the Bible, since it's inspired and inerrant, it only makes true statements about God. So while our knowledge of God will always be limited, we can know God in truth based upon what His Word teaches us about His nature and character. And folks again I think it's important to say that knowledge of God doesn't mean that we just know facts about God. That Jeremiah passage out of Jeremiah 9 I read a moment ago uh, I read a moment ago the the Bible affirms that we can actually know God. He's made it possible through Christ for us to know him. So we're not just talking about knowing facts about him. We're talking about knowing him in relationship. Now let's turn to number four, the character of God. The character of God. We can't say everything the Bible says about God all at once. We we need ways to characterize the attributes of God. Now different theologians use different categories. Okay, so this, these are not the only categories you could use. Charles Ryrie, for example, in his basic theology I told you about at the beginning, a very simple, a good starter theology by Charles Ryrie. He talks about all the different ways that the different words used to categorize. But now, the two that I'm going to use here, uh, the, the communicable attributes of God and the incommunicable attributes of God. The communicable attributes are those attributes of God that he shares to some degree with us. And we're going to talk about this in a minute, okay? Those attributes of God that he expects us to imitate. And then there's the incommunicable attributes of God. Those attributes of His that belong only to Him. So let's talk about those first. The incommunicable. I want you to write down God's eternality. God's eternality. Psalm 90. What does Moses say there? From everlasting to everlasting. You hear what Moses is saying? From eternity past to eternity future. You are God. You know, you and I can say that the Bible clearly teaches that we're going to live somewhere, either heaven or hell, based on what we do with Christ. We're going to live in either heaven or hell for all of eternity future. But did you and I exist from eternity past? No. But God did. Doesn't that blow your mind? To think of a being that had no no beginning? I mean, that's, that's, that's hard to comprehend, isn't it? But the scripture affirms that about God. And then a second... Incommunicable attribute of Him. His unchangeableness or His immutability. God's immutability. God is unchanging in His being, His perfections, and His purposes. Scripture says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. How important is that? Let me let let you listen to somebody, Dr. Wayne Gruden, who can talk about this better than me. Listen to what he says about God's immutability, the importance of it. Here again, I'm not going to read much. But he writes, at first it may not seem very important to us to affirm God's immutability. The idea is so abstract that we may not immediately realize its significance. But if we stop for a moment to imagine what it would be like if God could change, the importance of this doctrine becomes clear. For example... If God could change in His being, perfections, purposes, or promises, then any change would be either for the better or for the worse. But if God changed for the better, then He was not the best possible being when we first trusted Him. And how could we be sure that He's the best possible being now? But if God could change for the worse in his very being, then what kind of God might he become? Might he become, for instance, a little bit evil rather than wholly good? And if he could become a little bit evil, then how do we know he could not change to become largely evil or wholly evil? And there would be not one thing that we could do about it for he is so much more powerful than we are. Thus the idea that God could change leads to the horrible possibility that thousands of years from now we might come to live forever in a universe dominated by a holy, evil, omnipotent God. It's hard to imagine any thought more terrifying. How could we ever trust such a God who could change? How could we ever commit our lives to him? Just a little bit more and I'll, I'll finish. He says, moreover, if God could change with regard to his purposes, then even though when the Bible was written, he promised that Jesus would come back to rule over a new heaven and a new earth, he, was, he has perhaps abandoned that plan now. And thus our hope in Jesus' return is in vain. Or if God could change in regard to his promises, then how could we trust him completely for eternal life? Or for anything else, the Bible says. Maybe when the Bible was written, he promised forgiveness of sins and eternal life to those who trust in Christ. But if God can change, perhaps he's changed his mind on those promises now. How could we be sure? Or perhaps his omnipotence will change someday so that even though he wants to keep his promises, he'll no longer be able to do so. He says a little reflection like this shows how absolutely important the the doctrine of the immutability of God actually is. I think he says that very well. The immutability of God, it speaks volumes to us even in our worship, doesn't it? We don't serve a God who's fickle, who's changing. We can depend upon him and we can know he consistently deals with us according to his word. He's not some moving target. And we can count on the fact that his purposes remain the same too. Folks, there's a great deal of assurance and confidence in that. Now, doesn't it seem as though God changes his mind at times? For instance, you know, God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it. And God changed his mind and decided to spare them. But we've got to understand something. God in his eternal decrees states that if man does this, then God will do this. If, if, if man repents and comes to him, it doesn't mean that God changes. God always decreed this. If man repented and believed, then God would change his position and redeem man. It's man who changed and God recognizes that change accordingly. And so the saving of Nineveh was always in the heart of God if they would repent. Now, let me throw out another incommunicable attribute of God I dare say you've probably not heard before. God's impassibility. God's impassibility. And this means that God is without passion. And what that means, he's not subject to suffering or pain or involuntary passions. In the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith, God is without body, parts, or passions immutable. The doctrine of the passability of God has to do with the theology of of the suffering of God. Does God suffer? Does God feel emotional pain? Now, the men, for instance, who wrote the Westminster Confession meant that God does not exhibit these emotions as mere humans do. What they meant by that is God doesn't have mood swings. All of God's emotions are rooted in His holy nature and are always expressed without sin. They flow from His perfection the way He has perfectly ordained them. For instance, the Lord's anger is rooted in His divine justice. His justice is pure it's right, it's holy. His anger is perfectly righteous and predictable. It's never capricious. It's never fickle or malicious. And so even in his anger, God never sins. The impassibility of God means that God is not cold. He's not cold. It simply means he doesn't have passions like men. In other words God doesn't pitch temper tantrums like a three year old. Now the impassibility of God actually necessarily goes along with God's independence that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Because God is independent man's actions don't put God into some sort of tailspin now next on this list we could talk about God's omnipresence we read today at the beginning Psalm 139 where David said where can I go from your presence you know I go this direction you're there this direction you're there that direction you're there that direction you're there Where could I flee from your presence, even if I wanted to? And the answer is nowhere. God, you're everywhere. Now, the omnipresence of God does not mean that part of God, that part of God is in one place and part of God is in another place. As Wayne Gruden says, it seems more appropriate to say that God is present with his whole being in everything. Every part of space. First Kings, First Kings eight twenty seven says, "Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain God." Then we can talk about God's omniscience, the fact that God knows everything, in one simple and eternal act. He fully knows himself and all actual and possible things. God doesn't have to learn. God doesn't have to sit at the feet of a teacher. God is all wise and all knowing. And not only does he know all things, but he always chooses the best possible goals and the best possible means to meet those goals. And then let's talk about God's omnipotence. What does that mean? He's all-powerful. We see this from the opening verse in the Bible I referred to a moment ago. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke. He said, let there be light. And there was light. All things are subject to God's omnipotence. Do you remember that story in Mark chapter 2 where four men grabbed their friend who was a paralytic? He was confined to a mat. And they carried him to the house, and the house was packed, and they couldn't get in it. And they went up on the rooftop, as they did back then. They had outside staircases, went up on a flat roof, and they dug through and lowered the man down. And you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, your sins are forgiven. And how the Pharisees respond to that? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus said, okay. So that you will know that the Son of Man can forgive sins. I say to you, take up your mat and walk. And he was healed. He took up his mat and walked. Jesus was doing something physical that was visible on command. He spoke the words on command and healed the man. Can you do that? No. Could you say to a paralytic, get up, take up your mat, go home? No. But he did that so that they could see in his ability to do that, that he could also do the invisible that they couldn't see, which was forgive sins. Now let's also talk about God's independence. It's also referred to as his self-existence. Or another word that's going to be new to you is aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. Aseity. And that, that word's just a Latin word. It's from the Latin word that means from himself. And what it means is God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Listen to Acts 17, Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God's aseity or his independence says to us that, that God didn't need us because he was lonely. Sometimes you'll hear people say that God, God created mankind because he was lonely, he needed our fellowship. Well, he may desire our fellowship, but folks, he doesn't need our fellowship. We don't complete God because God is complete in and of himself. And think of it this way too. God enjoys perfect communion within the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He enjoys perfect communion in that. He doesn't need us for communion to complete Him. Let's also talk about God's unity or simplicity. We're going to wrap up here in just a moment and finish this later. God's unity or simplicity. Now, simplicity has negative connotations today. So you're probably going to want to put a star by the word unity and use that word instead. What what this refers to, what this attribute refers to, is that he's not composed of parts. God's, God's not divided into parts, yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. But what it means is that you can't look at one attribute of God to the exclusion of all others. And can I say that modern man today loves to do this? Because modern man today will say what? My God is love. Is God love? Absolutely. But when they hear that Somebody talks about God judging evil or God disciplining us or there's going to be a judgment one day or people without Christ will go to hell. No, not my God. My God is love, as though that comprises all of God. But the scripture also says he's holy. You see we have to we have to look at all of the attributes of God together and not just pull out one And ride that one and that one alone. And then lastly here, let's say God is invisible. Yes, the Bible does record instances when people have seen outward manifestations of God. Isaiah, I mentioned Isaiah a moment ago. He saw the Lord high and lifted up and exalted. In Genesis 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of uh, memory. Now, in those instances, God took on a visible form to show himself to people. Now, we're not told exactly how God did this. We're just told that he did. And the greatest vis- visible manif- man. Manifestation of God is what Jesus, John one eighteen, John one fourteen and one eighteen. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and He's come to show us what the Father is like. But nonetheless, we know that God is invisible, and 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 this is one of the reasons we're not to make images of God to be used in worship. Because what would we make? If you tried to make an image right now to to worship God, what would that image look like? It would fall short of God's glory. It would be an idol. And it wouldn't do God justice. He hasn't revealed himself to us in some kind of form that we can copy. Again, the closest we can get to this, Christ. God incarnate coming in the flesh. And then the image of God in, in man. Man's created male and female in God's image. But other than that, we're not to make images. Okay, just very quickly and we're going to wrap up. <clears throat> Communicable attributes. I said these are those that God expects us to emulate. We can talk about God's love. You know, 1 John 4 8 says what? God is love. And because God is love, a true sign of conversion, according to 1 John, is that we love one another. So, we're to emulate God in this. Will we love perfectly the way He loves? No. But nonetheless, He expects us to love. God's holiness. Isaiah chapter 6. Folks, that that seemed, if you, if you were to have to be pinned down on something, say, what? What's, a, what's an attribute in the, of God in the Scripture emphasized maybe more than all others? A lot of people would say love. I would beg to differ. I think it would be holy, holiness. Because what Scripture say of God? Holy, holy, holy. Thrice. Scripture never says of God, he's love, 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 or justice, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. But it does say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we're to be holy, 1 Peter 1 13 through 16. We're to be holy because God is holy. Again, He expects that in us. In God's mercy, Lamentations 3, God's mercies are new every morning. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, Blessed are the merciful. We could also talk about God's goodness. Jesus said in Luke 18, 19, no one is good except God alone. The goodness of God, Genesis 1, before sin, before the fall, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was what? It was good. And then we could also speak of God's truthfulness. He's a God of truth. As Paul says in Titus 1, 2, we serve a God who cannot lie. And again, this is why, like in Ephesians and Colossians, we're told that we're to tell the truth to one another because we serve a God who is truth. Now, it may be better to share the last thing I'm going to have you fill in today before we break. It may be better to say, you know, when we talk about incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes... Again, because it's an imperfect way to do classifications. But I think it is helpful. But it may be better to say that God's incommunicable attributes are those that are less shared. And His communicable attributes are those that are more shared. Now see, that wasn't so bad, was it? I'm going to end before going all through the doctrine of the Trinity. Now folks, in in closing this morning, let, let me wrap it up this way. When we talk about the doctrine of God, because of who He is in all of His perfections and holiness, what does this demand of you and me? That we worship Him? And we surrender our lives to Him. He is worthy of our worship. In fact, you get to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, and you see those heavenly scenes going on. And what are all the saints and the angels and the cherubim and seraphim? What's everybody doing? They're worshiping God. God is worthy of your worship. If you're not worshiping God in your life, you're sinning against God. And you're falling short of His glory in that. He is a God full of grace and glory. He's an awesome and holy God. He deserves my worship and your worship. Jesus said in John 4 that the Father desires people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Are you a worshiper? just in here you say i go to church i'm not i'm not just talking about this in your own life private worship because you know private worship is gonna impact your public worship and help define public worship so do you need to make some changes in that regard and become a worshiper when you think of these attributes of god these that he shares with us are you living in holiness? Are you living in love? Are you living in mercy and goodness and truthfulness? Maybe there's some areas of your life that are under conviction because you're not imitating God in this area. Maybe there's sin in your life or unforgiveness or hate, hatred or bitterness or lack of forgiveness or mercy. And and you know that there's some changes that are in order in your life. There's to be a family likeness. If we say that we're adopted into his family through faith in Christ, we're his sons and daughters who cry out, Abba ah, Father, we're to look more like him. You know? Reinhold Niebuhr, a skeptic, said to believers on one occasion, If you want me to believe in your Redeemer, then you need to look a little more redeemed. Do you need to look a little more redeemed? Would you stand, please?